Welcome back to the room. <clears throat> We're going to begin, and I'm going to invite Keith to come and read. Our passage this morning is found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. So if you have a Bible, uh, or if you have a Bible app, or if you don't have a Bible, there may be a paper one in one of the seats in front of you. You feel free to take that. And as you turn to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, where it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Keith. Galatians 3, 10 through 14, uh, if you remember from, it's been a few weeks actually since uh, we worked through this, maybe before Christmas, uh, but in Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul is trying to convince the churches in the region of Galatia um, not to abandon Jesus, not to go back to the law, not to go backward. Uh, they were infiltrated by a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers uh, followed Paul in different places where he went around the region of Galatia. And everywhere he would go, they would come behind him and they would say, Jesus is great and it's wonderful for you to believe in Jesus. But in order to really be accepted by God, you need to believe in Jesus plus you need to work uh, on the law. So their message was Jesus plus the law equals salvation. And so Paul's furious reply is the letter to the Galatian churches. Uh, and he wrote this letter, and, and from start to finish, Paul maintains a tone of uh, real high frustration and uh, um, astonishment that they would abandon Jesus and that they would adopt a Jesus plus model for salvation. Paul's reply in the letter to the Galatians is essentially Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If I were to take this uh, bottle of water and offer it to you and, and tell you that it's, you know, spring water and it's been purified and they've removed all the contaminants and everything like that. And then I would offer it to you, but I would say just one second, and I would take a dropper and drop one drop of poison in this. Would you want this? Absolutely not. No, good, good answer, DJ. You don't want poison water. Uh, follow DJ's lead. Uh, so because of that, this is the same idea as Galatians. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so Paul's message to the Galatians is do not add anything to salvation. The purity of the gospel is that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for salvation. And our works add nothing to Jesus' finished work on the cross. Our morals add nothing. Your religious activity adds nothing. God is not 
keeping roll this morning and wondering if you're following along. That doesn't give you permission to nap or anything like that, but, but God's not up there wondering and, and checking off boxes of righteousness and so that if you do enough things that you could have a right relationship with Him. The gospel is that Jesus accomplished the work of salvation completely on the cross, and we are accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus accomplished and nothing that we contribute to that. Nothing, there's nothing we can contribute to that. John Owen said, we can begin each day with a deeply encouraging realization that I'm accepted by God, not on the basis of my personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. That Jesus accomplished the work of salvation, and our right response is to believe, is to trust in Him fully. Uh, I was describing what it means to believe in Jesus alone or to trust in Him alone. And I use a variety of different illustrations, but I was describing it not too long ago. And um, we were outside and there was a creek. And I said, if, if I were to ask you to swing across that creek on a rope swing, anybody ever swing on a rope swing? And, and if you're not careful, you'll hit the tree, right? Or if you're not careful, you'll flip and let go too early, right? Or you'll miscalculate how strong your arm muscles are versus your lower mass, right? And you'll, you'll fall into the creek. Well, um, if this person were to swing across and there were five or six ropes, um, there is no combining or braiding of those ropes together to make that swing better. Only one rope is capable or strong enough to safely deliver us from sin and damnation into forgiveness and eternity, and that is the rope of Christ Jesus. Did that hit? Probably not. I don't know. Uh, think about it. All, all uh, illustrations break down at some point. Uh, so at this point in the gospel, I mean, in the book of Galatians, and especially in Galatians three, um, Paul is basically trying to convince them: don't go backward. Um, don't go backward to uh, uh, salvation by works continue to live by grace through faith, and he's showing them all the reasons why they should do that. So in Galatians 3, um, if you can imagine with me three different mountain peaks. In 1991, I went to Buena Vista, Colorado. Anybody ever been to Colorado? Raise your hand. A lot of you have been to Colorado. We have a student at the University of Colorado, Denver here, Elijah. Uh, thanks for playing bass for us today, and we're glad you're back. Um, I was in Buena Vista, and, um, and one of the um, Colorados uh, ha has many 14ers. A 14er is a mountain peak that exceeds 14,000 feet and above the tree line. And, and we had the opportunity to climb one of the three collegiate peaks, uh, Mount Princeton, there outside of Buena Vista. And it was a six-hour hike, and, and so we climbed up there and had an incredible view. And as soon as we got up to the very top of Mount Princeton, we could see the other collegiate peaks all around there. If you have that view in mind, apply that loosely to Galatians 3. He's describing three mountain peaks of redemptive history. In verses 1 through 9, he described the mountain of God's blessing toward Abraham. In mountain 2, he's going to describe the mountain of the law of Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. And then in Mountain 3, he's going to de demonstrate how Jesus fulfilled both the blessing of Abraham 
and the law of Moses so that in Christ we have this magnificent Mount Everest view. We got to get through the first two mountains first. Uh, The last time we talked about Galatians 3, we talked about the promise of the blessing to Abraham that demonstrates the necessity of faith. How many of you started a new Bible reading calendar this year? Anybody else? At this point, you should be somewhat through Galatians, uh, somewhat through Matthew, I'm sorry, somewhat through Genesis, uh, somewhat through Matthew. You ever read Genesis and about halfway through, you're like, these people are a little crazy, right? There's lots of wives and lots of lies and there's lots of deceit and, and Esau and Jacob are tricking each other. He's putting lamb's hair on the back of his hands and his neck and he's dressing up in Esau's clothes. And, and then Laban is tricking um, Jacob, and Jacob is working for Leah, and he's also working for Rachel, but then he's also got these other two on the side. It's like a, a, a kind of an unusual um, introduction to Scripture if you're trying to get through that, and you're trying to make sense of it, but the blessing uh, is characterized by the Abrahamic covenant. That is that God came to Abraham, he initiated a relationship with him, and he said, I choose you, to bless you. And if you look at Abraham's life, it's just bless, bless, bless. Now in the South, we say, oh, bless your heart. And that does not mean bless. That's a curse, right? But in Scripture, when he says bless, he means bless. He means that God's favor is on him and that uh, he says, everyone that you bless will be blessed and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to greatly multiply you and I'm going to multiply your flocks and your herds and your men servants and your maid servants and, and God's going to bless you with territory. If you just read Genesis 1 through 50, especially 12 through 50, it's just bless, 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 bless all over Abraham. And the key point to that, God's initiation and God's covenant contract contractual relationship with Abraham, Abraham had nothing to do with it. When God cut the covenant between Abraham and himself, Abraham was asleep, right? God passed through the animals in a smoldering fire pot, and Abraham was in a deep, dreadful sleep. That shows that God initiated the promise, fulfilled the promise, and the obligation was on God, not on Abraham, which explains some of his long-suffering toward their, uh, frankly, kind of outrageous behavior that we read in uh, Genesis 12 through 50. So the first mountain that we look at, and we already talked about this, this is just review. The first mountain is the favor of God in blessing Abraham and blessing the entire world through Abraham and his offspring. The first mountain shows the necessity of receiving that promise by faith. And the key verse is Genesis 15, 6. God told Abraham, go look at all the stars of the sky. As many as the stars as you can see, so shall your offspring be, even though he and Sarah were childless. And Genesis 15, 6 says that Abram believed God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. There was no law. There was no law. There were no boxes for Abram to check. It was just the response of faith to the promise that God initiated. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Just a blessing based on God's own sovereign choosing and goodness in the life of Abraham. But everything flips when you look at the second mountain. The second mountain is the law given to Moses, emphasizing the holiness of God through the revealing of the law. Something is different about the Mosaic Covenant than the Abrahamic Covenant. 
In the Mosaic Covenant, you have all of these rules and regulations. You have moral laws like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. You have civic laws. You have worship laws. There are all these laws that accompany. And as Moses is hearing about the law from God, he is known, this phrase is repeated over and over, and uh, Moses did everything as the Lord commanded him. That phrase is repeated throughout Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all throughout the Pentateuch, uh, those first five books of the Bible. You see this phrase, Moses did all that the Lord commanded him because it was a, a relationship based on obedience to the law as described. But even Moses slipped, didn't he? We know Moses more by the, the one thing he did wrong, not by all the things he did right. What did he do wrong? God said, speak to this rock and water will flow from it to, uh, wa to give water and drink to all the Israelites with him. And instead of that, what did he do? He struck the rock. And because of that single act of disobedience, despite all the times that Moses was obedient, despite that single time, uh, he um, brought about the penalty of death before entering the promised land. So we want to understand the law of Moses today to get a better picture of this middle mountain. And next week we'll talk about the fulfillment of perfect faith and perfect obedience that comes in the person of Jesus, that third mountain. So let me pray for us and then we'll get right back into the text. Father, your word says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You tell us in John 1 that Jesus is the Word made flesh. You tell us in Genesis 1 that as the Father and the Spirit was hovering above the waters, that the Father spoke through words all things into existence. Help us to approach your Word this morning as a starving person approaches food. Help us to approach your word today as a person walking through the desert sees an oasis and water. Help us to drink deeply of your word in such a way today. Frame our hearts and our minds in such a way that we long for the pure spiritual food of your word and that by it we may grow up in our salvation and that you may transform us into the image of Jesus Christ for your own glory and your own majesty. Amen. Well, let's take a look back at the second mountain. We're going to understand the Mosaic Law, and, uh, and we're going to understand it um, because the law can be confusing. Have you ever wondered why, why don't we follow the Old Testament laws? Why do we read all these laws in the Old Testament, but we don't follow them? And, and how is it that we're supposed to operate and live our life in relation to these laws? Verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Let's just stop at this first verse here. This is a quote uh, from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 26. Uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. 
And in this picture that Paul is quoting from, cursed is everyone who does not um, follow and obey all the laws. At the end of Deuteronomy 27, Moses has this unusual thing where all the people of Israel are gathered on these opposing mountains or hillsides and half of Israel goes to one side and half of Israel goes to the other and one side shouts out all the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. All the promises of God, all the blessings, and then the other side shouts out all the curses for disobedience. So you have this unusual mob of people shouting at each other. Uh, maybe something like you would see on the news today of, of people angrily shouting back and forth at each other. But it was their way of um, reinforcing the blessings of following God's commandments and reinforcing in their community the curses that uh, accompany disobedience to God's law. He says, all who rely on works are cursed. That is, all who depend on works are cursed. Now just remember, in context, the Judaizers have come around to all the Galatian churches and said, you need Jesus plus works. You have to work your way to God. And so Paul is re uh, correcting them, saying, all who rely on works are cursed. That's a funny word, cursed. Um, under a curse. You think about curse, you think about a jinx. Um, you know, the TV announcer that says, this guy hasn't missed a field goal in 500 attempts, right? Or something like that. And then, of course, he totally jinxes the guy, and he's definitely going to miss the next kick. Uh, if you and I were playing pool together and, and you're better than me and you run the tables and you're on the eight ball, I'm going to walk around and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an X on that hole and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this number here. Anybody else do that? You curse, you jinx, right? You, you try to hex them a little bit. You try to get in their head a little bit. Um, we do all kinds of weird things about cursing. Um, it's, it's kind of a superstitious thing or trying to psych somebody out. Sometimes you can um, psych somebody out by um, sort of... Um, kind of inflating their ego or telling them, oh, you're definitely going to make this. There's no chance that you're going to miss this shot. You're probably the best shooter ever. Anytime we do these kind of curses, and we, we think of curses in our culture, uh, there's the curse of the Bambino, right? The curse of the Bambino is when the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth and stopped winning championships and, uh, and uh, sent him to the Yankees, and they started winning championships, and, and that curse was lifted at some point. There's the curse of the Billy Goat in Chicago, right? A, a guy brought his goat to uh, the field and, and wanted to allow his goat to wander, and they kicked him out, and they stopped winning championships until recently. Uh, maybe more familiar to you is the curse of Billy Penn. Anybody know the curse of Billy Penn, right? Um, it's a, there was a gentleman's agreement that no building in Pennsylvania or in Philadelphia would be taller than the statue of William Penn on top of City Hall. And in 1987, with the construction of Liberty place, the statue of William Penn was no longer the highest, and no Philadelphia sports team won a championship until then. It wasn't until 2007 with the construction of the Comcast Center that somebody put a little statuette, a little figurine of William Penn right on the very top beam, and in 2008, what happened? 
The Phillies won the World Series. Hey, by the way, every state that I've ever lived in has won a national championship, uh, whether it's Dallas or Oklahoma or Arkansas or Louisville. Uh, When I moved here in 2007, it's no coincidence that the Phillies won immediately the year after. I think I should hire myself out to major cities, uh, to be honest with you. But the curse was lifted, and right in 2008, they, the, the Phillies won the national, I mean, the, the World Series. And in 2017, another Comcast Tech building was built, and another figurine of William Penn was attached to the top. And then what happened, right? In 2018, the, the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, and so we kind of think of curses in this way, but is that biblically what Paul has meant that everyone under a curse, everyone who relies on works of the law is under a curse? Let's just get a little bit more biblical and less um, uh, cultural in our understanding of a curse. Curse is the Greek word katara, and it means according to or to, um, to have a penalty brought down on someone. And, and it resembles this idea of uh, the expression of great loathing and great punishment towards someone. Great loathing or the feeling or the expression of great punishment towards someone. Uh, last night, I got into a pretty serious fist fight. I'm not going to lie. Um, I got into a fist fight, um, and, and it was a dream, of course. I woke up at like 4.30 this morning, and the high school bully that used to pick on kids in my, uh, in my high school, for some reason, decided to pick on me in my dream last night. And so in the middle of the night, I found myself punching this guy in the face, right? And, uh, and as I was punching him, I don't know what you psychoanalyze, I don't know what it means either, but, but I found myself punching him, and of course, as I'm on the ground being punched by this bully, I reach over and there's, um, there's a bottle of mustard and I spray it in his face. I don't know what it means, but I woke up, and so if I'm a little delirious, it's because I had this major fight in the middle of the night. But I do know that when I woke up, I either said it out loud or I wanted to say it out loud. I was like, curse you, right? I, I wish nothing good for you. I wish nothing positive. I was basically yelling at this guy in the middle of this dream. That's kind of the idea of this curse. It's to call down condemnation on somebody or to announce condemnation on somebody. A curse is any expressed wish that some form of adversity or misfortune will befall or attach to one or more persons. In particular, a curse may refer to such a wish or a pronouncement made effective by a supernatural power such as God or a spirit or a natural force. We often call these things uh, jinxes or a hex. German people, including Pennsylvania Dutch, you probably might know this if you're from the area, they speak in terms of hexing, which is from the word hexen, a German word for doing witchcraft. And a common hex in the days past was that a stable witch would cause livestock to go dry or to come up lame. I've had local people ask me, can you help me remove this hex symbol from my barn? 
Is that God's curse on my family because of, of these symbols that we find on all these barns? Have you seen all the hex symbols on barns as you drive around here? That was an imported witchcraft kind of thing brought over from, uh, from Germany, from the woods of Germany, forests in Germany where they would practice this, and it was blended with Christianity so that now there are even hex doctors in local areas around here. Um, this sort of cursing gives us insight into the way the Bible depicts God cursing people. He curses the serpent. He curses the earth. He curses Cain and uh, pronounces a judgment and a punishment on Cain. God pronounced a curse through Noah on Canaan. Joshua cursed the man who rebuilt the city of Jericho. In various books of the Hebrew Bible, there are a long list of curses against those who transgress the law, the ten plagues of Egypt. Um, Christ in the New Testament curses a barren fig tree and pronounces his denunciation of woe against all these cities that rejected him. He uh, curses the rich who don't come to him, the worldly. He curses the scribes and the Pharisees. And he foretells the awful cursing that is to come upon those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. This word cursed is serious in Scripture. And in Galatians 3.10, Paul said that all who rely on works of the law are under this curse. Have you ever felt cursed? Have you ever felt like nothing you can do is right and everything that you do is wrong and everything that you touch goes sideways or badly? The Bible describes the curse as a penalty, as a penalty for those who are under the punishment of sin and rather than running by faith to the one who can redeem you from that, relying on works of the law to make yourself right with God. He tells us in 3.19, look down at your Bible again in, in, um, in Galatians 3.19, he says, why the law? What's the purpose of the law? The law does a couple of things. The law shows us the futility of our flesh. On your best day, with your best effort, you still can't please God in your own power by the works of the law. There's not a single day for any one of us where God will look at us aside from Jesus Christ or apart from Jesus Christ and say, you're fully pleasing to me. Because we see in the law, especially in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, that we're all prone to sin. The commandments, you shall not have any other gods before me. Worship the Lord your God only. We worship and place value on things other than God all the time with our heart and our affection. We set our desires. We set our affection on the comforts of our flesh or on sexual pleasures or on other desires. And in all these things that we do, it demonstrates that we don't worship the Lord God only. He says to keep the Sabbath and to honor it, not to work on Saturdays. He says that we should not take the Lord's name in vain. To not say God or Jesus or the Lord in a flippant way. 
But in my family, we grew up, Jesus was a curse word, and we would take the Lord's name and use it as an expression of anger. Often, I was corrected by many of my teachers. We don't use that language here. We're supposed to honor our father and mother. We're supposed to uh, not um, commit murder, or Jesus qualified it as to hatred. We're to not commit adultery, and Jesus said that lust is adultery. We are to not steal, to take anything irrespective of its value. And, and so bearing false witness or lying or coveting something that your neighbor has, in all those ways, the law shows us that we're sinners. And it doesn't just show us that we're sinners, but it intensifies the sin Recently, Grayson and I went on a two-week road trip to Oklahoma. Three days out, three days back. And I don't know. I mean, some days I'm really good. I I set the cruise control at the speed limit, right? And I just think, I'm just going to be content to drive the speed limit, and and I'm just going to be good with that. But every time I see uh, cars driving faster than me, and they're not getting caught, right? Maybe I can just nudge it up a little bit to five over, And then I continue to go. Maybe I'll just nudge it up to 10 over and just kind of get in this flow. And then I see the speed limit sign and I'm convicted. Every speed limit sign intensifies the fact that I'm in my heart a lawbreaker. Every instance of speeding demonstrates the willfulness of my own heart to willfully violate the law of God. I wouldn't be in violation of the law if I didn't know the speed limit, right? If I just closed my eyes and plugged my ears, I couldn't really drive that way, but, but I, would, I, would just, I would not feel convicted, right? If I just, la, 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 I didn't see that speed sign and I'm just following the traffic. But because of the law, it proved that I am a lawbreaker. And you think, well, I keep the law in most of the ways. I drive on the right side of the road. I don't drive on the wrong side of the road. I never went through the medians and I never ran red lights. So I kept most of the driving laws. So what's a little bit of one, two, three, five miles per hour over the speed limit? You can't violate one aspect of the law and then call yourself a law keeper. The law intensifies our own sin nature. And it demonstrates that we are indeed sinful. Not only that, but the law is limited. The law can't bring life. How many of you, by obeying the law, thought, oh, this is so enriching. I just, you know, I'm going the speed limit and life is great, right? We don't do that. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring salvation. The law can't produce righteousness, only unrighteousness. This was really evident to me uh, over the past weekend. I saw a bunch of basketball games. I went to a couple of basketball games. And let me just say, I am not the kind of guy that yells ever at the, I had brothers and a father who would yell at the TV. I mean, they would throw stuff at the TV. They would yell at the referee. That's not a foul, right? They would just scream. I sat at these two basketball games. I'm not going to point to anybody in this particular room. But there are people who can referee from a chair across court 300 feet away and can see a toe on the line or a slap on the wrist. There's something about a father or even you know, a mother in the stands that, that just yells, right? They, they yell at the referees and they yell, at, that's not a foul, that is a foul. And, 
and there's one girl at one of the games just looked at her dad and was like, shut up. I don't want you to say another word. What is it that draws us to the law or that draws us to the rules of a game? Because all of us can appreciate the fact that basketball is best played when there's an equal opportunity and it's just based on competitive nature itself and skill and ability. When a referee doesn't give another team an unfair opportunity or when they blow a call or something, we all agree that basketball in theory is best played according to the rules. And there's something about us that longs for that. You know what it is? It's the fact that the law reflects the righteous and perfect character of God. That everywhere in the universe you see order, you see um, art, you see um, design, you see all of these things and you watch the way the natural laws work and then you see the law of God and the way it was meant, it was designed to give you life. And so we see in the law this perfection and the sense of us, the sense of us that sees God in the law and sees beauty in the rules of even basketball or football or whatever. There's part of us that appreciates that while also being condemned as people who break those rules. So Paul continues in verse 11. So now it's evident, it's obvious that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul says it's obvious that for those reasons alone, that the law shows us that we're sinners. The law is a taskmaster. It's a teacher. Um, I have scribbled in the margin of my notes from a sermon that the law is a guardian before faith was revealed in Christ Jesus. The law was meant to show us that we can't accomplish salvation by our own means. We are affirmed from the beginning that the righteous shall live by faith in that first mountain. And then that second mountain, we're shown the law. And that mountain is like a weight on top of us because we can't fulfill it. We just can't. We can't make God happy by following the law. We have to live a life of faith. We have to trust when we can't see. We have to believe that God is opening a way, even though with your own eyes, you don't see a way through the circumstances or the situation that you're in. You have to walk by faith and not by sight. And faith isn't just for the beginning of your walk with God. I put my faith in God a long time ago. Faith isn't just a one-time thing that happened back then. Just like marriage isn't saying, I do, one time. Marriage is continually saying, I do, I do, I still do, I do. Walking by faith is repeatedly pressing into Jesus Christ and living the life of faith. Romans 14.23 says that whoever doubts is condemned because um, whatever a person does that does not proceed from faith is sin. Faith is vital to your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Look down at verses 13 through 14 because this is the beauty of the gospel. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You remember the first mountain of Abraham? It was all just bless, bless, bless. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. The blessings of Abraham are given to us, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish by culture or heritage. The blessings of Abraham are given to us by faith in Christ Jesus. And why is it by faith in Christ Jesus? Because the curse that we deserved was placed on Jesus. Jesus became the curse. Jesus became the hex. Jesus became the jinx. He became the penalty. He became that which God cursed on our behalf. So that in exchange, he might give us the righteousness of Jesus that he received by following the law perfectly. Jesus never broke the law. Jesus was never tempted to put his donkey on cruise control a few miles per hour over the speed limit. Jesus completely obeyed the law at all times perfectly. And because he did so, he did not deserve death, but he took that on him. He took the curse on himself. And he took the curse on himself so that we could experience life, not through the law, but by transferring our trust in Jesus Christ. I had a conversation this week, and me and this guy were talking about how the gospel never gets old. We don't start with the gospel, and then as we grow and mature, kind of outgrow it and it becomes dull and we move on to deeper and higher truths and mysteries and experiences. The closer we stay to the cross, the more tender our hearts are toward Jesus. We don't ever outgrow the gospel. We continue to emphasize the beauty and the majesty of God's plan for salvation unfolded in it. And why is that? Let me tell you why the gospel never really gets old. For me, I don't know about for you, but for me, it's because our hearts are prone to wander. We get streaky and frail, ups and downs. Moments of strength followed by times of weakness. Moments of victory followed by times of failure. Moments of temptation, moments of victory. And in the end, we have to realize that we are dust and that every time that we have those ups and downs, ins and outs, highs and lows, times when we're really into worship and we can't stop singing. It feels like the Holy Spirit is just overwhelming our souls and times when you just can't even really sing and you don't even really want to be here. I know that doesn't happen for anybody in the room, but there are times when we just go through these lulls in our walk with God. And it's in those moments exactly, it's the regular application of the gospel that means it never gets old. It's the fact that, that I could be walking with Jesus and then struggle, fail, fall back into sin or, or fall back into some habit or pattern and understanding that it's not something new that I need, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I give into temptation and fail, the gospel is still a remedy. When I feel like I should be punished, I look to the cross and see the punishment that Jesus took on my behalf. When God disciplines me, 
I'm reminded from Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves and that discipline is a part of the gospel and it's good. When we feel trapped and we can't escape a situation, we don't see any way through. We see that Jesus leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, as a shepherd leading us to green waters, green pastures and flowing waters. We understand that Jesus, if you could conquer death and the grave, that he can surely lead you to fix your parenting issues and your marriage issues and your finance issues and your job issues. The gospel isn't just something we outgrow. Jesus substituting himself on the cross and rising in victory has an everyday impact on who you are and every situation you face, every sin that you commit, uh, every time your heart is cold toward God and you don't talk to him and you realize a whole day has gone by or a whole week has gone by that you've, you've not prayed, you've not worshiped. The gospel is the answer to all those things. Times when you have no hope and you have no peace and there's confusion, the gospel becomes for us the source of living water and the abundance of hope and joy and peace. Jesus becomes that as the fulfillment of both of those mountains, the blessing of God and the issue of the law of God. When those two are reconciled, what we talk about next week is how Jesus fulfilled that perfectly so that if we place ourselves in him, then he becomes the strong tower that we run to. I'll close with this illustration. Uh, as we were driving, uh, we saw evidence of tornado damage. Have you ever driven down 309 since the tornado hit and you see the tops of trees cut off and you see houses with tarps on top because the roofs were torn off and you, you just see evidence that a tornado came through there. All along our trip, we drove through Kentucky uh, in parts and in, in Tennessee in parts and there was that tornado that ripped through at an Amazon warehouse in Kentucky. You can see evidence of that on the landscape. And as we were driving through, uh, we saw one particular area that was desolate. There were no buildings, there was no safety. And Grayson said, where do you go? Where can, where can a person run to when a tornado is coming? Do they go to that overpass? And I said, yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes people will stop their cars and they'll crowd underneath a bridge or an overpass and they'll, they'll hold on to those girders uh, uh, and those structures and the steel as, as tightly as they can. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes the tornado will come right through and like a vacuum just start sucking people out. The safest place to be, as we learned in elementary school in that particular part of the, the country, the safest place to be is underground. It is the strongest refuge. It is the strongest, safest place to be. And in the same way, if you're trying to please God through works of the law, it's as good as holding on for dear life under an overpass when a tornado comes under. The safest place to be is in the refuge of Jesus Christ. And by placing your faith and trust in Him alone, and forsaking everything else that you're trying to trust for meaning and value in life. Repenting of all those things, and in Christ Jesus, finding all your hope, all your worth, all your value, as the only one who is sufficient to save. The only place you survive a tornado in a direct hit is underground. And the only place that you survive the wrath of God against lawbreakers is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. It never really gets old. Uh, We never tire of talking about the love of Jesus Christ, that while we were still enemies and opposed to him, he died for us. While we were still using his name in blasphemous ways, while we were still flippantly, angrily, willfully, intentionally sinning against you for our own pleasure, Jesus died for lawbreakers and rebels and sinners so that he may hold out to them the path to life, that we may be reconciled to God. Now, this world and our culture tells us that the path to real life is in self-knowledge or it's in independence or it's in your own spiritual journey, however you might define it. But in Jeremiah 6, it says, look for the ancient paths. Long for the old ways and look to the sure ways. And we understand through the gospel that those sure ways to life are found in our great and strong refuge and a tower in Christ Jesus. May we always run to him in Jesus' name. Amen.